Sunday's experts Always know what's best Always tell you what you should have done Monday's experts Always know what's cooking How the game was lost and how it... They say the darkest hour is right before the dawn and after crisis week... The same people who were writing elegies for the game are now praising a memorable weekend of football. Round 8 was a gift that just kept on giving, and its pinnacle was surely Showdown 44, which ended in the most magnificent fashion imaginable. Unfortunately, after the thrill of the weekend, I've been brought back to earth by the news that Brownlow medal favourite Toby Nankervis might not play against West Coast. He missed Richmond training on Wednesday because of an injured wrist, and I must say that I am simply devastated. To decode the depths of my despair and to look ahead to a top-of-the-table clash between the Eagles and the Tigers, I'm joined not only by the beautifully polished bald head of Gordon Hunter Meredith, but also by women's footy almanac editor Casey Simons. Casey's essay, Am I Fan Enough?, is a part of Balancing Acts, a new book of essays on women in sport, so she'll be at the centre of our book club segment this afternoon. And Casey is also a diehard West Coast fan, so we figured she'll bring some much-needed balance to the force and to our preview of Round 9. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having us, and thanks for putting on the great studio environment for us as well. It's really nice. We're in a studio for the first time at the University of Melbourne, and I must say it's a little bit sweaty in here, but I'm also wearing the long sleeves. So we're going to launch straight into our talk about Round 8, and Gordon, you caught the showdown. Well, yeah, I caught the showdown and the Friday night blockbuster after you said it's the, uh, you know, this is the dawn now. We've had the crisis. We've come out with the Phoenix and the Flames. and uh, The fire the, and the flood. Yeah, the fire and the flood, all of those cliches involved. I find it very ironic, though, that in general, the AFL media was very pra- like praising of this round, although both of those two highlight games involved everything that they hated. So if you go back and tally up, like, tackles, congestion, ball-ups, stoppages... Those two games had the highest ratio, other than the North Richmond game, of stoppages, ball-ups, tackles, pressure, everything that's wrong with the game. But they were also the two best games of the weekend. They also particularly weren't very high-scoring games either, especially the Friday night game was a bit wet and soggy and whatever. But even the showdown, 185 points total, isn't a terribly high-scoring showdown. No, not between those two teams either. Yeah. That would have that had the potential to be a high-scoring game. Mm. I just, yeah, I thought it was, like, just... When I was sort of listening to and watching 360 and it's like, oh, my God, how good was this? I'm like, guys, like a week ago you were talking about how buggered it all was and, like, you've had three good games in a weekend and all of a sudden it's like Mecca. Mm. And, it, yeah, it was just really bizarre. The only one nostalgic part of the weekend for those two games, though, was the bags. So you had Ronk mm-hmm. kicking his bag of seven. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, so yeah. it kind of lets, like, a little window into the, oh, here's the key forward doing what key forward should do. This is just like the 1980s. Like mm. let's have let's have Lee Matthews. There's need, obviously to keep the media happy, there needs to be a, a designated Lee Matthews type person to do <laughs> that kind of hybrid role thing. It's also very ironic that they say that oh, positionless football is going to ruin the game, but in reality, the two positionless players had the most impact. So you had Wrong as a small forward who laid ten tackles, scored seven goals for the first time Which ever. Never been history. done. Never been done. So, you know, he's not playing a, in a traditional key forward position. He's not playing a small position. He's playing this kind of outside mid coming in to cause pressure but also kick goals. And then you had Robbie Gray doing the same thing. He's, he's a genuine midfielder that goes forward and kicks goals and in that hybrid kind of position as well. So it's very funny that, all again, all the things, the hypocrisy of nostalgia was very present this week. But it was also the fact that those two players took games by the scruff of the neck in a quarter mm. as well. And they had one quarter where they were just unplayable. I must say that 
Ben Ronk is probably the most likely off-season free agent for Richmond now. You're kicking seven goals and having ten tackles. Damien Hardwick will be frothing you, I would have thought. So forget Tom Lynch. I want well, he doesn't lay enough tackles. We all know that Damien Hardwick want wants ben tackles Ronk. first. I want Ben Ronk. That's what I want. Absolutely. And of those two games, do you? Yeah, is that what you want to see more of in terms of going back to that crisis? What, what, what is good footy? Were those two games good footy? Or is it simply just good footy as a contest? So both games are decided by less than 10 points. Is that really what we want? And the reality is that, you know, this week coming forward, we're going to have more clashes between top eight teams versus bottom eight teams. So therefore, there's less likelihood of it being a close game. And that's just the draw. And let's just suck it up and enjoy what football is for what the case is. But that's the nature of the beast. Like you get the showdown, Hawthorne and Sydney on a Friday night, which is always going to be a pretty good game. Throw in a bit of wet weather. It probably gets a little bit spicier. Like you're always going to get two or three really good games just generally by looking. Even West Coast GWS had the potential to be a really good game. Um I think what was interesting is those two games both fitted the bill like almost to the T of what we sort of thought a good game was. Like they weren't necessarily ridiculously high scoring, but like the pressure was up, the contest was up, they were close. The finish in the Port Adelaide game was just Yeah, match moments are really good. And oh, like Robbie Gay is probably the most clutch like to use an American term, the most clutch player out there. And he really is it was interesting, I think it was Dwayne Russell. Oh, Anthony Hudson, who said like he's the only player that has the sixth sense around the ruck, which is like massive hyperbole, obviously. But that's tw- two years in a row now where he's obviously read the touch yeah, perfectly, yeah. better than anyone, better else. anyone yeah. else, and just managed to find himself in so much space in what was a fairly congested game. Yeah, and I know they harped on about it on AFL 360, but uh, Ken Hinckley. So were you about that, or do you need do you need to show restraint? Because no, the two, obviously the two coaches totally on 360. unbridled, totally unbridled. I thought it was hilarious, like. It was kind of like, great that you've got emotion. Yes, you look like a little bit of a deal, but good on you. was kind of how I felt. But too much, though? Like, in terms of, like, do you think there'll be a a negative effect of that coming into the week? Just if that was the – obviously, if he's the the figurehead of that club, so the amount of emotion that he showed, will that draw back from their performance this week because of of just the natural letdown? You don't think so? I mean, people are human. Yeah, but he went like he went hard. It was the there was when the goal went through the massive fist pump. Then when the next play was nullified, massive fist pump. Siren went. He went double fist pump, and then he gave it and continued to give it the whole way down, like out, out of his out of the box, down the stairs, past the fans, down the stairs, onto the field. Kept going. It was like seven minutes. Do you reckon they have a fine system at Port Adelaide? Oh, if he he has to shout because like he's now he's doubling like shouting all yeah. the years, like he, for the rest of the year. Yeah, and so I've had a very. Uh, South Australian and Victorian bias there. Should we talk about the West Coast uh, West game as well? Yeah, absolutely. Let's throw to uh, Casey to go through what happened between the Eagles and the Giants. The, a few outs for West Coast, Casey. Yeah, well, thanks for having me in, boys. Um, this studio is very impressive, so I'm loving this setup. Um, yes, the game was very pleasing and positive for me, um, to use my coach's speak. But... From what I learned from the game was just having some key outs. We really have explored our depth so far this year, which has been so exciting as a fan to know that when we have some big guys go down, it doesn't really matter. We've got some other guys to come in and just really still dominate, as well as introducing some young players along the way. We've already had seven debutants this year as well. So, well, six, not including Archie, who was a club debutant. So we've got the depth, we've got the youth. It's just all exciting at West Coast right now. And I think the game on the weekend was a bit nerve-wracking for me because I think GWS were really pushing us, but um, we were lucky with some injuries there that sort of left them a bit depleted. But it was good to see us get the win and um, great to see what Jack Darling can do in the goal square as well. I'm quite uh, worried about Jack Darling at the moment. Just looking, looking forward to that. You think I should be, yeah. Um, 
What did you observe in his game that had changed from previous seasons? It's just his confidence. Um, his mitts are just on fire this year, how he's able to sort of take those leagues and take those marks. Um, I just think he's just really stepped up in the last, in those sort of few early weeks when Kennedy wasn't there, he really pushed himself and now he's just backing himself in. So I just see in his eyes now, he just wants the ball and when he's in front of goal, he's just not darting around anymore. He just knows what he's got to do and um, he's still pretty young. He's only 25, so he's had a few years to develop that. But I think this year he's just flicked it on. And probably the, the most obvious West Coast question to throw, how fuming were you about Nick Nat getting a week? <laughs> and uh, you can put the eye patch on. We won't won't hold it against you. Uh, yeah, it was pretty um, – I was pretty disappointed. Um when something like that comes up, I think it's always 50-50 with if they're going to get a week or not. But I think how they explained what he did wrong and putting the onus back on him to calculate his size and weight against his opponent was just a rot. Um, I saw a very similar tackle on the weekend with Elliot Yeo um, on Shield. So I think that didn't even sort of warrant a look, um, which I just can't see. If you're going to ping one guy for something similar, why not ping another Um Perhaps Yo did have a little bit more of a turn in that tackle, but it was still round the body, one arm free, head into the ground. Um, and I think Nick was just unfairly penalised because of his size, which is ridiculous. That's not the rule. Um, but, you know, it's fine. We won. We don't, you know, he was all class with the decision, so we'll just move on. <laughs> well, you got there in the end, but I, I guess I come at this from a different perspective because I just thought he should have rolled him. Like taking him sideways. I don't know what you think about that as well, Gordo. We'll sort of, mm. we never really spoke about this, but I, I feel like he could have just not driven him headfirst into the ground and given him a free kick for pushing the back. So it was interesting to see over the, over the week because there's, there's a lot of like intra code banter when it comes to these sort of things. And the, the other two major Australian sports, that being Union League, have a bit of a a bit of an AFL complex when it comes to us doing things wrong, us being like, I follow all three sports, but, you know, this is an AFL podcast. And they was like, the quote in the tribunal hearing, I think was like one-eighth of a second. Like he had one-eighth, like you have one-eighth of a second to to tackle and make decision between height and weight and roll and whatever. And the response from the rugby codes was one-eighth is long. Like we are, are testing at the AAS shows that you only have a tenth of a second when you're having a line hit up. So it, maybe he should have rolled him and like that's... So it was twofold. Like the league, the league guys were like, "Yeah, that's a terrible tackle. You can't go in the back." And that's just the way that they, the way that they go. Mm. But the union guys were like, "If that's a terrible, if that's a, if that's an offence, if that's a suspension, then this is the softest game on earth." Like we already knew it was soft. You run around in your underwear, but if that's a week, then this is this is even softer than we ever imagined. So even like even the two rugby codes have a different take on it as well. So any uh, final West Coast based comments from the weekend, Casey? Um, well, maybe, maybe just a little note on where the Giants are at because they look poo at the moment. Yeah, I think they've been really disappointing, and I was expecting to see a lot from them this year, considering um, they gave it such a run last year. Um, I really don't know where they're at. They seem to be really inconsistent. They're not exciting to watch anymore. I remember watching their games last year and just being excited by the amount of raw talent in that team, but I'm not seeing that this year. I think they've got some stars, absolutely, but they're not coming together in the way that they used to. So I don't know what's wrong there and I don't know what is going to happen moving forward. But I think we were really able to overrun that um, because, I mean, biased, of course, but I think West Coast is a much more united unit as a team. Um, So they seem to read each other a lot more than what the Giants were able to. And I think that's where we won the game on the weekend. Mm -hmm. 
need a bit more ticker, we think, Gordo. Well, yes. Is the, the reality is they're missing, I think, seven of their best 22 players. I read a really good article about the Giants are almost in a situation where they have to have two good 22s to compete because of the amount of injuries mm, that they Absolutely. Have. And it's just like no matter what team it is and no matter what draft pick concessions you've had in the past 10 years, you're never going to have two 22s. Well, capable of competing I, at AFL level. It's going to sound very biased, but I think the two teams that do are West Coast and, and Richmond. And you it, see both in, of them. Interestingly, the VFL results for both West Coast and Richmond on the weekend were fairly resounding. Yeah. I think Richmond have lost one game. They won on the weekend by 85 points, and West Coast did something similar in the waffle. And, they, and you see that when you do a bit more reading into those club cultures, they don't have this notion that playing in the seconds is bad. Mm. Now, something was brought up about Port, uh, Port Adelaide as well, because Rockcliffe ended up not having a full preseason, going back into the twos, and then Hinkley promoted his good form there and then had a good game for the ones on the weekend as well in the showdown. And I think that's what you need to have. So you need to have – not only do you need to have strong twos that creates competition, but you need to have the sense that you, we are all in the squad together and you need you need to be playing well wherever you're playing so that when you do get called up to play your role, you're ready to do it. And you see that a lot with West Coast. There's a lot of pride in what their waffle team does. There's a lot of pride in what Richmond's boys do in their twos. And there's no sense of – you know, there's no sense of oh, you're playing twos, you're not good enough. It's that there's just not room for you in the ones. Yeah, it's a very different, yeah, very different notion. Where I think we have with GWS, who they who they recruited, what they're being told as juniors, they've all come from essentially the top two percent of their talent pools, mm-hmm. and so when they get dropped to the twos, it's like oh, what's the point? Like I'm, I, and that's what you see. So many people, they so many players moved away from Giants because they were in the because teams. they were in yeah. the twos, not getting a game, and then you get this situation where you have seven, ten, twelve injuries. Yeah. And suddenly there's no depth because all your depth players are playing for Carlton. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, now you get the say, so it's like, oh, cool. Uh, we've got this year's draft picks coming in and being like, oh, you have to fill that role that Delidio does that well, for 250 games of experience. Which brings us to the Richmond and North game, which I, not going to lie, I always feel like less happy about life when I'm at Etihad. Um, I don't Etihad's know. a stadium that feels like it's been caught in a time warp. Like, I remember going there when it first opened, as, and I was, I was essentially a kid then, and it was like, oh, this is so cool. There's TVs in the back of the seats, and it's, it's got a roof, and how cool is this? It's like the future. It's like, it's like, it's like you see all the like, amazing NFL stadiums in, in the mm-hmm. States. And you're like, oh, Eddie has just like that, and now we got Eddie had it hasn't changed at all. And you're like, oh, those, like my phone has higher res than the tellies in the back of those seats. And <laughs> no one turns up, and the food's twice as expensive, and it's always either too hot or too humid or too cold. Like even though it's all air conditioned, there's a riverboard, and only bad teams play there now. And it's, it's you just get deflated before even the game even starts. And then the games that we've had there this year, bad Friday footy, uh, and the, like that was the pinnacle of, of an Eddie had game. And then even this, you're kind of like, oh, it's not going to. It's like for some reason, and like even this year, goal kicking, like it's the least accurate goal kicking place. The natural drift. Because yeah, the lack of natural drift apparently is the excuse that the uh, that the old coals have given us. So West yeah. Coast kick pretty well there in round two, so I think it's fine. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, so you kind of have that experience, and then I had I actually really buggered up. So the girl I went with, who's a friend of mine from England, uh, hello Lydia, if you're listening, went to the MCG. So she lives. Thankfully, she lives in Richmond, but I forgot to tell her the game was at Etihad. So even that was like a bit of a man. This would be so much simpler if it was the MCG. I'd be having. You know, some brunch at Cheeky Monkey and then walking down to the ground would just be mint. But you, you, are, you are a man obsessed with the convenience, though. Yeah, but you don't have... Well, Eddie had's like, convenient, but you don't have... Like, it just doesn't have any aesthetic pleasure. 
I don't walk. I don't get to see KB before the game. I don't get to listen to leaps and bounds while I walk up. And listening to football train on the platforms just not the same. And then you feel like you're in a concrete jungle, and like you feel like you're in like one of those cities in like the Lego Movie, where it's just like, or even like um, the city in Star Wars, Coruscant, where it's like just ridiculously modern when you walk through that little bit. Mm. It's like, oh my god, this is just ridiculous. Is it like Star Wars? It's not. It's it's ah, it's a it's a nineteen it's a 1970s version of what could have been modern. Yeah. Um, but the game itself was was a pretty good game. I thought like I thought it was an enjoyable game. It was quick. It moved end to end. Both teams wanted to go down the middle. You said there was. I was surprised that you said there was more stoppages in this game than any other. I didn't know that, and I wouldn't have predicted it just watching the game because both teams were pretty kamikaze. But it was a bit of a. I mean, Richmond really died after half time. Like they just stopped playing, and then they kind of had. Really, just had that. They just were. They're a winning team, and North probably aren't a team that wins as often now. So they had a little bit, dare I say, it, of like just maturity that I think got them over the line because North were fifteen percent better probably in the second half. And um, I thought when we went behind, we we're in a bit of trouble. Like we just managed to pull ourselves out. I mean, the first half we were dominant. So I thought the the interesting thing, and this is probably, I think with Richmond as well, it's not so much. It doesn't really matter who plays well. Like, so they tagged Martin. Martin basically got tagged out of the first three quarters. Um, Cochin then went and had 37. So, you know, to tag one of them but not both. And then Martin still had three score assists in the final quarter. This is where I'm like, people are very much, oh, Dusty got tagged out, Dusty got tagged out. How are Richmond going to deal with this? It's like, well, they don't really need to deal with it because they've got enough midfield depth. And the bloke then went and had three score assists when the game was on the line, which happens often now with Martin. He comes into vogue in the last quarter as a bit of a cherry on the cake rather than the cake, and I think I've used that analogy before. So, yeah, a little bit more stressful than I'm used to. I was, almost had to confront the idea of losing. And are you one of the Martin baggers saying that he's getting a bit complacent and a bit lazy in defence? No, I think he's carrying something. And I've thought that for since almost round two, and I think that he will miss some games this year at some point because I think that he will have a week where he's got a niggle and Richmond will just not risk him. Interestingly, this game, he didn't actually spend as much time in the forward line as he has in previous weeks. Because that game in Adelaide, it was almost like when the ball hit the deck, they just said, Dusty, we want you there to kick goals. But when it's on the deck, like, let other people chase. Because, uh, yeah, and again, I have no evidence whatsoever or scoop that he's carrying something. I would just be surprised if they were like, Dusty, don't bother defending. And there's a history of people bagging players who are performing well below their capabilities and their and their proven results so like the Danaher situation clearly for six six weeks and then people came out and went oh they've just put them they've just made up the injury well that's a very conspiracy theory take mm. the, the real take would be he has an injury he tried to play because they don't have an active forward line he can't do it anymore now he's not playing that's why he didn't play that well in the first six weeks so i think again if, if dust is a little bit below form you could say the conspiracy is getting lazy he's getting complacent or you can say oh for the last four years he's been pretty good as a two-way player Perhaps he's trying to conserve some energy. Perhaps he's trying to get through some games. Yeah, like, and also, like, to be honest... And roles change as well. Well, I don't think anyone at Richmond particularly cares if the media are bagging him. No, like, absolutely not. Someone asked Damien Hardwick this, and I just said, I see that we're 6-1, and one, hmm. or whatever his answer was, which I thought was kind of around the mark, because ultimately the challenge for Dusty is not going to be Dusty... You have, like, great. Like, for Richmond to win the Premiership last year, Dusty probably had to win the Brownlow, and he had to do all the things that he did. This year, I just don't think it's that. And I think... You watch in September, I would bet, you know, I don't have a lot of money as we've already stipulated, but um, 
you know, I'd bet something really fairly valuable that Dusty will be amongst the best three or four players in September hmm. because but that's when it matters. It also doesn't fit their narrative, though, because last year Richmond were the, the underdog winners who, who you know, there was, there, there, was, there was kind of like an uplifting underdog story to the, like, the aggressive forward pressure and Dusty winning and having the most successful year of all time. When Dusty doesn't succeed and the team's still winning, then the opposition fans, the media kind of go, uh-oh, do we have a... Like, do we have to start talking about this as like an actual proper good team that might be good for a long while? Because it's not just Dusty, it's not just one player, it's not just a gimmick. It's actually, oh, they they're turning up every week and winning. This this could be a problem for you know that that topsy turvy roller coaster football we want to see and different results every year. So. Well, people have finally started talking about how good Shane Edwards is, mm. and I think anyone that watches Richmond regularly has probably been talking about that for maybe two years or longer because his hands are just saucy. People's question for today. Well, there's a couple of little interesting issues going around, but obviously the most uh, prevalent and talked about is umpire touching. I'm not going to talk specifically about that question, but more, does the AFL have an authority complex? Mostly umpires, but also just positions of power. And I come across that line because obviously the issue this week has been the Counter Brothers. But my real question is that do we have a proper underlying and systemic issue about umpires and, and officials in footy? And not just at the AFL, but at all levels. And is it, when we talk about this is a bad look for the game, do we actually need to step back and go, oh no, let's talk about everything that's a bad look for the game from, yeah, players being a bit physical with umpires on the field in this scenario to what happens to umpires in a local league game or what happens to umpires in a juniors game or the behaviour of parents towards volunteers at juniors games or the act, the, the yeah, participation of slurs from crowd members at, at AFL games. I think in general and all across the board, we treat umpires with 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 disdain, but also kind of um, encourage disdain. And even like in terms of commentary, you'll hear every Friday night BT have a have a go at the umps. And so if you hear it from there, you go to the ground and see it live. You go to your local game and you either do it or you see someone else do it live. There's kind of three or four repetitious layers of hey, it's actually okay to say it's always the umps' fault. The umps are always bad. Who would be an umpire? And like go back to like the nineteen eighties, and it was all the white maggot terms and all that kind of stuff. So, is there a, is there a huge problem? And does the tribunal need to be the position where we take and say this is how we change the image of the game, or is it more we need to go and peel back the onion a lot further deeper and go let's change it from the source? It's a complicated one mm. because I feel like umpires in football are dehumanised. But I think there's something in the way that the game is umpired that does that. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Like I feel like they're they're no they're there is an authoritarian figure, and the way that they are taught and coached to behave, I think, lends them or makes people feel like they are there and they're more than happy to abuse them. Does that make sense? Yeah, they are. They are treated like robots essentially. And mm, not sure. Don't know how you treat your robots. Well, like computers. Like you get no, angry at the computer. You blame yeah. the computer. Um, Road rage is kind of like I feel like they drivers you don't know. Do you know what I mean? When you drive around and you give someone an absolute bake through your windshield, and you don't know who they are, so it's fine. That's kind of how people feel about umpires. Hmm. They're a lot more. I suppose in AFL they're a lot more present as well, which is they're very visible comparative the, to other sports. Very visible, and the way. 
the way the rules work, there are so many occasions where the umpire has to make a decision that become more involved in the game. So I think it's, I think it's threefold. So the rules don't help. The rules are really hard to umpire. We say this every season when we have since kind of like the merger of VFL, AFL, when mm. things became more professional and results kind of mattered a bit more to either, you know, the, the livelihood of clubs or the livelihood of players or whatever. So that doesn't help. And they're going to make mistakes. They're going to make mistakes constantly. And that's going to upset people because with the, you know, with the aid of slow motion replay and 400 replays and Twitter and social media and the ability to take a freeze frame and all that kind of stuff and voice your opinion, it's just much easier to hate. That's that's probably part one, and I think. But I also think part two is that we don't umpires don't or aren't trained in a way that they create relationships with players. So if if a player, so you make a wrong call, the player's going to come up to you. They're going to be angry because they think they didn't make a mistake. The players know the rules pretty well, as much as the umpires don't want to admit that, and they don't allow discourse. Whereas if you watch rugby union, rugby league, hockey, hockey, most most other yeah. sports. There's obviously a discourse, and it'll be like, and so if someone goes up to you as as an umpire, and they're like, "Oh, Evan, that was a dis- that was a silly decision," blah blah blah, and they might go and say some expletives. In AFL, that's fifty meters. In in rugby mm. union, especially, they'll just be like, "Boys, like, that's what I saw. That's what I'm calling. I understand you're upset. Go back to your position." And then if it goes back and forth, then they'll then they'll escalate. But in AFL, there's no room for discourse. Does that there's come no from room the for fact explanation. That there's no cards. Well, yeah, and I I never understood why there isn't a send-off rule or there isn't, like, a system of immediate action. There's always just – because there's no way for – how does an umpire control that situation when there's no there's no immediate actions to be had in-game? Other than the 50 metres. Yeah. Which is, in comparison to the consequences in other sports, very, very light. Mm. I mean, I think one of the first things you get – and I'm probably stitching Dad up for some – parenting here sorry dad but i feel like it's one of the first things you learn in football is like how to abuse an umpire and that's not just my dad i think that's universal because i know that he used to mourn the day that um god he's probably not going to cook dinner for me ever again but he used to he mourns the day that they started wearing colors because he could no longer call them white maggots Mm. Uh, he's probably going to be absolutely livid that this has been but even throughout throughout like nostalgic football literature there's been many, like in songs, in in books, in memoirs. There's just been this this long history of hating the umps, which is it strikes like we do have Hall of Fame umps, but like I, I feel but you like you to name one. Yeah, I am. Do you okay, do you want to know his name? Yes, please. This is not my bat and rant for the week, but it should be a vor crap. That's I, I'm not taking the piss. Yeah, there. He that's was, it. Known as the best umpire in the VFL AFL in the early 1900s. There you go. Uh, umpire of all crap, and it was written in several papers that umpire crap had a good day or umpire crap had a bad day. And like he's he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. I can't remember when, but he's in the Hall of Fame. There you go. Yeah, that's actually one of my favourite footy tidbits. That there is an umpire called crap. Like, who was actually pretty good. Who was actually pretty good, but you couldn't script that. No. You can't like you can't make that shit up. That's yeah, amazing. It is. Um, so, Casey, what do you make of the umpire bashing? Did you learn from a young age to... I probably did, but it's probably nothing um, that's probably different from your experience. But I think I tried to train myself not to behave that way. Um, it's interesting when you talk about having a discourse with the umpires. I don't think there should be a discourse. I think um, the 
work rate that they have around the game and the quick decisions that they need to make, even if they can be wrong, and I get frustrated at them sometimes too, I think it just needs to be a quick move on. And yet they can do that in their own reviews and figure that out themselves. I don't think they need to have a discourse with the players. But what I find really interesting from like the initial um, question that you had, Gordo, about the AFL sort of backing up the players and the decisions that have been made this week is I feel the AFL kind of puts a huge amount of pressure onto the umpires to roll out some unfavourable decisions that they make. They're the ones out there adjudicating them. Um, and when the AFL doesn't come out and put players on notice by way of suspension for touching them, which is not allowed, I think is incredibly poor, um, the umpires have such a, a massive amount on their shoulders and as much as I grit my teeth watching them sometimes. Um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for them and I think the AFL just needs to really have a hard line of touch an umpire. It doesn't matter if it's incidental or not. Speak to an umpire in a derogatory way. Just a fine suspension. Just stamp that out because I think it does filter through. And I think when you have um, someone like Michael Christian who goes out to a local umpire at his uh, daughter's game and speaks to the umpire in a way that he's trying he might think in his head that he's trying to be helpful it's not it just sends out that message to everyone so that's kind of my take on it I've tried to train myself a little bit to stop uh saying certain things their way um which is difficult because we're all very passionate fans but um that's my take on it yeah for sure I think they need to be more protected I think this is interesting because I don't want to forward into book club but your essay is about fandom and I think that Umpire bashing is a fundamental component of being a fan. <laughs> no, sorry. Fundamental, no, it's accepted is what – it shouldn't be fundamental, but people literally don't think twice a lot of the time. I'm mm. Like, I would say that you're more conscious than 95% of the football barracking population to even have thought about your conduct towards an umpire. Oh, I think so too. And I think it's, um, it's instinctual and it's part of um, – like – when you're watching a team and they do something wrong, I mean, unless it's a really sort of blaring player who you have a dislike for anyway because they constantly do things wrong and then frustrate you, you do find, try and find someone else to blame and an umpire's there. So you're trying to like use them as a scapegoat and that's a really natural way to behave. So I've definitely tried to do that with umpires in the past. But as you said, like I've tried to become more aware of that behaviour. Um, and I hope that the general footballing public does get to that point too. But I would say we're probably a long way off. <laughs> with umpires in the AFL, because there's four plus the goal umpires plus the boundary umpires, there does become a, like the umpires become this one entity. So they become a dehumanised, depersonalised entity. Whereas, yeah, rugby union, there's one central referee. And they talk a lot. They talk a lot to the players. And often, depending on union, they always get called sir. Rugby league, they get called by their name. But so there's still there's still an air, like an authority and respect. And there's also more consistency. So and the reason why they talk more, and same with hockey, the same with majority one or two umpire sports, is that they go whatever you, like whatever the rules are in general week in week out. This is what we're going to blow today. Are we all clear on it? That's that's the essential mode of communication mm-hmm. that's done. And as soon as you get that. That's where most of the misunderstandings are gone because they just go, here's what we're doing today. That's cool. We can get around that. They don't that's, – that's why I want to hear more talking between umpires and players on the field is because they can just go – because most of the time a player will go, that wasn't you know chopping the arms. That wasn't me holding my forward. They're, they're like the two major ones where there's, it's really subjective and judgmental. And the umpire can go, this is, this is what I saw. That's a hold. Then they just know for the rest of the day that's going to be a hold. So long as they, you know, they get it right. They, they can't. I can't always get it right, but that's okay. 
But that's a much healthier environment than just don't talk to me, get away. And then, then you can you can kind of create respect on both sides. The other part I think though is that what do like so I know Channel Seven like two or three weeks ago went into the umpire's room as part of um, roaming Brian or rambling Brian's yeah. thing and in an attempt to kind of like him minds and talk about what they do before and after the game it wasn't terribly insightful but I think it's a step towards people understanding what goes into it. I... But the third part would be: Do you think that they need to become professional? Okay, like, so two points yeah. there. Despite the fact that I generally have a disdain for roaming Brian, I think that inclusion of the umpires in a media sense and a desire to cover them is actually really, really important, I think, because it does add a humanising element. I don't think... I can't remember the last time I read an uh, The last time I read an article on an umpire probably would have been when Eleni umpired her first game, and there was a feature on that. But other than that, that Channel 7 in the umpires' rooms is like the first you've probably seen of it. You hear them on the TV, but that doesn't really help. Mm. Um, so I think they can be done or more done in media circles and in the football community to actually give the umpires a voice and cover them in the same way that you cover players, CEOs. Um, I mean, Christ, we have so many stories. Like we talk about assistant coaches and like the bloody football directors more than we talk about the umpires. People that are backroom staff have more representation than them. So yeah, I think that Channel 7 segment is a step in the right direction. Um, in terms of whether they should be professional, I just don't know how much difference that makes. Surely the same amount of difference that it makes from a playing play, perspective? players going from... Because, you know, I, like players are maybe slightly... Like, they're probably like 10% fitter. They're not, they're not I definitely 100% fitter than what they were in the 80s. It has improved in that sense. They just have more time to recover. They have more time to just go back and learn about the minutiae of the game. So, like, in terms of tactics, tactics are the major thing that have improved or mm. changed, depending on what side of the nostalgia fence you sit on, in, since, like, 1980s to now. I think to get your head around that and to learn more about the game, or just to prepare more. So if you knew that you were umpiring on a Tuesday and you didn't have to work, you just umpire full-time, then you've got like five full days to actually go through and do video like the players are doing. Like I just don't think the hours that the umpires put in would not be the same as what players put in to come in getting prepared for a game of AFL. Who would you lose though? Because you lose a lot of high paid professionals if you do that, who are working as lawyers, doctors, etc., who then can't or wouldn't take the money you get for AFL umpiring because my career as a lawyer pays me more. Mm. So why don't you just pay them the same? The average wage of an AFL football is what, two hundred and fifty thousand a year? Mm-hmm. That would cover most. Probably means that you'll actually get more umpires wanting to become umpires, more players to continue to be umpires after their career, and you know, with a most of the time with high wages comes a slightly bit more high respect as well. We're going to fly on to book club. So, Balancing Act Women's in Sport is a new book that's just been released by The Lifted Brow. It features 21 diverse essays on power, performance, bodies, and love. Now, Casey's essay, Am I Fan Enough?, is about fandom being a fan and our need to exert our fanness over other people uh, and the fact that in a male space, women need to prove their fanness and need to be even more fan than the men in the room to fit in. So my first question, Casey, probably follows quite on uh, quite nicely on from that last point. 
How confronting do you find it to sit in a room on a microphone discussing footy with two strapping white males? Yeah, well, you know what? It is actually pretty daunting. Um, even though I do feel quite legitimate in my own fairness um, and I know what my connection to the game is and my love of my club, it's still very confronting to speak about football in an open environment. Um, I'm still very guarded about the things I say. And I'm trying to correct that. Like, I'm trying to be more confident with that. Um, and my background has been through um, my PhD studies. This is a PhD topic that I'm doing, and this essay has come out of part of that research. But I'm starting to be more aware of that kind of stuff. But, it, yeah, definitely still um, it's still something I'm always conscious of, for sure. Do you think it affects your behaviour less now than it did previously? That's a really interesting question um, because it's a yes and a no. Um, I think... It affects me because the behaviour is still there and it's still so unconscious, but I do notice now when I do it. Um, but in saying that, I still don't feel like I'm either confident enough or aware of it enough in the moment to sort of perform a fan me, so to speak, in the most authentic way. So I think I'm at a point now where I don't even know what that is. Um, I was saying to my PhD supervisor a while ago that when I get to the footy now and I meet up with some mates, the first thing I will say is like, let's get a beer. And I've done that over time because I found that that is the easiest way to talk to a bunch of guys about footy is to grab a beer with them and have a chat. And I've really come to love that part of football is having a beer at the game and soaking it up. But when I think about it, I think, well, have I constructed that part of me do I actually enjoy drinking beer? I don't know, but I have convinced myself that I do so much because that just made me feel part of something and just made me feel so excited to be at the MCG with friends watching footy. And I just thought that was a really authentic experience. But now I'm starting to doubt that because of the research that I've been involved with and how I've had to sort of mould myself to sort of fit into this male-centric environment. So I don't really know anymore is what I'm saying. So I think I like it. I'm just going to keep doing it and rolling with it, but still trying to be a bit more aware of those things. That's really interesting. Could you, do you actually like the taste of beer? Well, I think I do. Like, I am a beer drinker. I've got beer in my fridge all the time. Whenever I go to a bar, I just order a beer. Um, so I'm pretty sure I enjoy it, um, but I don't know anymore. I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> I think the better question is when you first had a beer, I remember my first beer, <laughs> did you actually enjoy it? No, because I would have been about 11 years old. Um, I used to sneak beers out of the footy club bar back home in Mildura. So I think even then it was sort of a, this is what the footy boys do. I want to be part of this. So I think it's been like a really ingrained thing over a long time. So just going on, is there any other sort of football ritual that you find you've adopted purely because you wanted to fit in in a predominantly male space? Footy pies? Uh, no, I don't eat pies because they're gross. Um <laughs> And, and I'm scarred from a childhood story about that. Someone told me when I was young that, oh, it looks like poo or something. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm never eating that again. And I was like, no, no hot pies for me. They look gross and they're weird. Um, I don't really have any rituals. I'm not superstitious. Um, the stuff that I've changed about myself is more around the discourse of the game. So, you know, laughing along to sexist jokes, um, when comments are made about women in the space – I sort of remove myself as 
a woman in the space and sort of pretend to be a bit more blokey and yeah, what is she? What is she doing wearing that to the footy? Rather than saying, well, what does it matter than she, what she's wearing to the footy? Um, so I think they're the kind of things that I changed about myself really unconsciously when I was a lot younger, just to be part of that environment and feel like I belonged. So it's not so much the things. Um, apart from perhaps the beer. But, yeah, it's more about the conversation around it. And do you feel like AFLW will make the fan experience easier for girls across both codes? Like, so AFLW and AFLM, I know they're the same code. Will that make it easier for girls in the future? I'm not sure about both. I think that experience at um, AFLW games is completely different from AFL games Mm. and it's really inviting and it's warm and it's not just embracing for women, it's embracing for a lot of minority groups who haven't been traditionally welcomed into um, sort of other spaces in our society. Like it's so open, it's um, it's just a really genuine place to be yourself um, that I have found. And I think that's just been really wonderful. If Is that going to make things better for the AFL space? I don't know because what I've found in the last two years is – now that there's AFLW, it's they're not considered in the same space. They're very separate. So I almost feel like now that the women's game is here, some of the things that I've picked up is, oh, well, women have the women's game now. That's for them. So it's not, oh, women are playing footy, men are playing footy, let's all be in here together and all be equal. It's almost like a little bit of a separation because I think we haven't quite brought them together yet. So I think the male space for women is still quite fraught. Um, and I think the women's space is great, but I don't think it's really translated across both yet. I think I'd agree with that. Having seen the crowds at the AFLW games this year, they're a very different feel, aren't they, Gordon? I think that the, the AFLW crowds are closer just to community sport grounds. Mm-hmm. Which is why I find the distinction between like a male-dominated viewing experience of professional male sport is very different to the crowds and the participation at levels you get at community-level sport. So, like, because volunteers are, like, so important to community-level sport, they just, like, it's everyone. So it's, it's mums and dads, it's partners. Now that we have, like, mass participation, especially in footy, at the local level for, for women as well, it's, it's male partners volunteering behind the canteen whilst their, their partners play and that kind of thing as well. And so I think you see more of that when you when that was the thing I found most interesting about going to AFLW this year and last year was that you go oh this is like being at the VAFA or this is like being at mm. the EDFL whatever. And in those games it's less about analysis it's less about expertise it's just like I'm coming to most of the time it's like oh my mate's playing out there let's go have mm. a look. But then it's interesting to say that you know you had to you thought you had to have a beer to kind of like break down the walls so that you could talk about an area of expertise, essentially. It's like, how do I ha- how do I have authority to talk about professional AFL as a as a woman? Which is, I find ironic because the people you're talking to aren't experts. They're not. It's not <laughs> like it's not like you know you're talking to David King from Fox Footy. You're just talking to some some random guys that watch that watch footy. So to to say that there's like the gender imbalance in just like level of expertise seems a bit ironic. Mm. And, I, and that's that's where you want. That's where you said like the fact that AFLW exists won't help that because. That's already seen as like a lesser, lesser level of sport or whatever, or like just a very different level of sport. Correct. So yeah, you won't get that dialogue, and that's the same with like WBBL. There's still not that many people that feel comfortable as outsiders to cricket, talking about their experience with cricket and that sort of thing as well. Probably the one hope there is when their sports are played conjunctly. 
So like the Rugby Sevens World mm-hmm. Series, they have men and women in the same stadium at the same time playing on the same schedule. It's kind of this is Rugby Sevens. There's not women's Rugby Sevens and men's Rugby Sevens. It's It just happens to be played by two different teams. The same with touch as well where they have mixed men's and women's all at the same time. Mm. needs to be the case. Whether or not we ever get to the situation where that will work logistically or the AFL will give it a chance or not is very different, I suppose. So do you find, Casey, that the the everyday man, so I'm not talking about your David King, but your everyday football, well, depending on your point of view, David King might be your everyman. Um, Do you find that men in sort of normal positions who are having a beer at the footy still struggle to trust female opinions or have you found that that's shifting? I guess it depends a little bit. You tend to hang out with a fairly... I would say, leftist inclusive crowd of, of male <laughs> football observers. That's probably true. Um, but I guess, like, the other side of what I've experienced is, um, like, I still actually uh, do some casual work for the AFL. So um, I've been working in AFL administration for the past eight years. Um, I've worked for the AFL head office for the Western Bulldogs and still do some match day work there um, to subsidise my scholarship for my university. So I'm still quite involved with the administration of the game. So I still have a lot of contact with a lot of male friends and colleagues from that experience. And I think... It's not anything that they do that's malicious. It's just kind of a few backhanded comments here and there. Like as soon as I self-identify as a West Coast supporter, I might get asked, oh, is it because you thought Ben Cousins was hot and I bet you have that picture of him shirtless on your wall? And I think you would never ask a man that if they identified their favourite team, you would say, oh, did you grow up in the area or did your parents go for them? So you always sort of get these really gendered questions that try and sort of situate you outside of that genuine fandom. So I think it's probably not as traditionally sexist as what it once was, but there's still a lot there that does make it quite frustrating because as soon as you're asked that question or someone thinks that about you, you are instantly reminded that you are an outsider and that you do have to fight your way in a little bit. And that's when I think a lot of female fans try to come up with their strategies to try and get back in. So for me, that was buying the first round of beers or something like that, like I said before. But it does make it tricky um, because you don't really realise that you're being... um, that people are being sexist to you in that way until you really think about it. So, Casey, I know we've already mentioned that it wasn't because of Ben Cousins and his good looks, but what is the actual reason that you're a West Coast supporter? I'm sure you've told me. <laughs> yeah, it's a silly story. I actually um, wrote about this in a piece for the Footy Almanac that I read um, at the launch of Balancing Acts 2 because we were asked mm-hmm. to sort of recount some uh, memorable moments in sport. But my stupid West Coast following story is about a young toddler who just loved saying the word no. So when her poor tiger's dad tried to get her to go for Richmond, she said no and um, got to a point where he told her that you need to have a footy team. Everyone had a footy team. So if I wasn't going to follow Richmond, just had to be another Victorian team. So I picked West Coast because I don't like being told what to do. Um, I still don't. So, <laughs> um, And I just found things along the way that just made sense to me. So I like their colours. Um, they were formed in my birth year. They won a couple of flags when I was really young. So I was just like, yeah, they're pretty good. Um, and then I just sort of fell in love from that point on. But, um, yeah, it's a pretty ridiculous story. <laughs> I want to clear my little brother's a West Coast supporter as well. And he was born in Sale. I think he just lucky dipped it. was just kind of like... <laughs> He's done well. Yeah. You can't betray the family team, I don't... I, you see, I... Well, we don't have a family team. Well, I'm... Well, a, that's, come on, Hunter Meredith family, like, sort it out. Uh, like, I don't understand that. That's very strange to me. 
and foreign. Well, what I don't understand, well, as as we had this last week, I, as a fan, I am a football agnostic and a sport agnostic. I care more about storylines and plays than I do about teams. I was going to say that you were just agnostic in general. But. Oh, well, yeah, that's <laughs> also true. Yeah, when people say, like, oh, like, how can you not have a family club? Like, why why can't five individual human beings get, go for different teams for different reasons? Well, that's my story. We're all different in my family. I wonder if it's a country thing because you don't have that mm. access to going to see your team every weekend. So they've got sort of that, I don't know, they're not as close to you as what you think. Like mm. We all went for the same local team. Um, we all follow South Mildura Bulldogs, mm. but um, all five, five of us are different. And it's not like in the States or in, even in England where, you know, every – Every state or mm. every town has their own club. Like it makes sense that if you live in Arsenal, you back for Arsenal. But if you don't, if you live outside England, no one goes. Oh, you're an Arsenal fan. Why you're an Arsenal fan? You live in Melbourne. Like it just makes it's that's the same sense to me. Especially when now, as like when kids are growing up now, there's two stadiums in Victoria where they play football at the AFL level. So really, like, you can go for any club. Like you're going to go to the same two places to watch them anyway. And very few of you are barracking for Collingwood because you live in Collingwood. Like yeah. Calm down, Benno. No, I get it. It's just—it's <laughs> clearly I don't understand because I am not from the country. That must be it. Hmm. And now I now feel like I've. But also, you married for Richmond. You grew up in Adelaide. No, I was born <laughs> yeah, in Frankston. It is still weird. Yeah. your story's still weird. You should be you should be barracking for Adelaide. I should be barracking for the Dolphins, really, in the, the VFL. No, I should, that's that's the most ridiculous assertion, because I was indoctrinated before I moved to Adelaide. So there was never any chance of me going for Adelaide. Although, and this is probably one that will shock the listeners and the football world and everyone that's ever thought they knew me because I had a Port Adelaide membership for a season. Why? That, exactly. Dad <laughs> thought it would be a good idea to get behind one of the local teams, which is very bizarre because everything about my dad is stoically Richmond. But, um, yeah, I have a hat signed by Gavin Wanganin that I got at a Port Adelaide fan day. And... One of my footballing memories, earliest footballing memories, was being at Footy Park, sat in the Port Adelaide cheer squad, but in Richmond colours, and Richo hit the post from the top of the goal square directly in front of us. And I was like seven, and I was copping it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we've gone on a little bit of a tangent. We have. <laughs> I had a female housemate that actually mentioned that she finds that men are generally intimidated by the fact that she had a very good knowledge of sport. My response was like, you need to hang out with some different men. (laughs) But do you think that that power dynamic in the AFL fandom mirrors society power dynamics? Yeah, I think so. I think um, anytime you have a woman who has more power or more knowledge um, than a man in any environment, it makes it really fraught. Um, I used to have a bunch of girlfriends when I worked um, full-time at the AFL quite a long time ago now. This is sort of around 2013. Um, that would constantly ask me why I was single because I loved football, I loved basketball, I knew things, um, I drank beer. Surely I was the ideal girl for any guy. And I would just look at them and just think, no, I'm not. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to have a bar with me. Um because whenever I would try to talk to someone I liked about footy, I think I instantly put them offside. So, I mean, not that I'm flattering myself. I'm sure there was other reasons they weren't interested in me. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, I definitely found, have found that in my experience. Yeah, that men are actually intimidated by being the less intelligent person. 
And I don't even know if, if it's intimidating. I just don't know if it's also that appealing. I think um, that idea of sharing a fandom with a female partner is maybe not as appealing as what we think. I think um, there's something, I don't know if you both have read Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby um, about uh, his sort of love of Arsenal, but he does detail a little bit in his um, book where he talks about he does want to find this football-loving girlfriend because then life would be amazing. But when he actually does find um, a girlfriend who develops a love of Arsenal, he finds that he doesn't actually want to share it with her because he doesn't want an equal partner in that relationship because one example he gives is if they have kids, um, she thinks, oh, well, one weekend you can go to the game, one weekend I can go to the game, we can share the season seat and look after the kids. But he was sort of thinking, oh, no, I don't want to give up Arsenal for for you and our kids. No, that's my thing. Um, so it's like this fantasy thing to have this sports-loving girl, but I don't think it really is a fantasy at all. And I think you see it reflected in kind of positions in the media as well. So like whilst Fox Footy is going out of their way to have more female presenters, the roles that they take on match day – and during the week are very different. So there's not a female analyst on on the couch or on AFL 360. There's three on the one show on on the mark, but they do the what in like media would be called like the fluff the fluff story or the or like the character story. They don't do they do the analysis. I thought that was that the whole premise of that show. Don't get me wrong, I like the show, but the idea of it is like this is going to be more sensitive, more personal. We'll get the girls to deal with that because yeah, it's a little bit more. This touchy. is a, this is a more feminine style yeah, of storytelling. Like, I think that's a underselling the ability of male journalists to do that job. A because there's those characteristics that are classed as feminine are things that have gone out of vogue in like with Eastern Wood and the Western Bulldogs. So mm. I kind of embraced that things that are supposedly feminine, but really are just like being a nice person. Mm. Um, and I think that there's still this obsession or fixation with the female boundary rider. One story like that's, that's changed has been the NBA with Doris Burke. So Doris Burke had been a journalist and a boundary rider for oh, like decades, and then eventually someone convinced her, um, someone at TNT and ESPN to be like, this is probably the most knowledgeable person of tactics and has all the inside sources of the coaches and they all actually like her. So if we want to actually get inside analysis and breakdowns of the game, get her on the mic in as many games as possible. And this year, and because she's obviously so good at it, there's been no real backlash from it from, from viewers. There hasn't been that traditional, or what would she know? They go, oh, wow, like Doris is actually probably the best breakdown analysis we have at the NBA right now. And I think there's opportunities there to go, no, some of these people have been working in, in football for long enough and actually have that knowledge that it would be more than some of the play, play-by-play calls we've got or some of the analysts that we've got who are probably there to touch and go, you know what? You don't have to be a boundary rider. Let's get... Let's get narrowly in the in the in the box and say, what are you seeing right now? Like you've watched enough footy to know that, as opposed to I would have thought. Hmm. And the same with someone like Daisy Pierce. I reckon I'd rather have Daisy Pierce doing analysis than a man who played twenty years ago. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I think that the way that those media roles are still constructed, it's almost like having, uh, like, and this has kind of been in vogue with news for a long time. It's like you always have an attractive woman doing the weather. Yeah, I feel like. Even in in a similar way, the boundary riders kind of a similarly constructed position. Well, it's probably the topic of a different conversation, but even the setup of sports media boxes at the moment are very pop the packet. You've got one play by play call that's been there for you know twenty odd years. You've got the old retired legend, the newly retired legend, and then usually a female boundary rider, and we'll repeat that across eight different radio stations and two different stations, and yeah. Mm. So. so just sort of 
bringing ourselves right back. Um, I take it from the essay, or I certainly read it as you believe in Casey, that there's not any one way of being a football fan. Like, this is like if you want to be a Richmond supporter but only know three players, like, you can do that. And if you want to be, like, diehard and know everything about everyone, you can do that too. And there should be a lot, like, irrespective of gender, like an acceptance of the fact that there are different levels of fandom. So that is that how you felt or tr- what you were trying to convey when you were writing the piece? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for a long time I was convinced there was really only one way to do fandom and that was to sort of take on that traditional really sort of blokey, diehard, know all the stats, be there yelling at your team, and that was a real fan um, because that conveyed real passion. Um, But what I've come to know after a long time that that's not true, and I think it's not fair because I think everyone should be able to enjoy the game from their own experience in their own ways, and that shouldn't take away from their legitimacy as a fan um, because I think that's what we try to laud this game as. It's a game for everyone. It's Australia's game. Um, so it should be accessible for everyone to enjoy it as they want to. Um, and it shouldn't be in a gendered way or any other sort of way that diminishes people's experience of enjoying it. I think it's interesting because I think I generally have, and somewhat like different to your circumstance, like a, a level of comfort with my own like level of engagement. Like I'm quite happy to go to some games and not watch them that closely. And there are other games where I hang off every single thing that happens. It depends on who I'm with. But I, like, very rarely find myself caring that much about, like, what I'm being portrayed as, as a football supporter, which is a really different experience to what you've Mm. had. Yeah, as I would say that um, that's probably a luxury that you have. Um, And in, and I don't mean to say that in a, a, like, a narky way, but, (laughs) um, like, I've found... Like there's some games I go to that I'm not particularly interested in um, and I always was really afraid of that in the past because as soon as I took out my phone to look at Instagram because I was bored, I would just feel that people were watching me and thinking, oh, look at this girl sitting here. She's not paying attention. She's What is she doing here? She doesn't care about football. So I think if you were to look at a guy doing that in the stands, it's a very different connotation. You sort of think, oh, well, maybe he's looking at the stats or it doesn't matter that he doesn't care because he's a man. He's obviously a real fan. He doesn't have anything to prove. Hmm. And I thought that was one of the biggest strengths of the book and not just your essay but the others from a male perspective and a position of privilege. I think it was very, very good at selling me into some of the the significances of the changes that have occurred in the last sort of, particularly the last two years, I would say, with AFL and the AFLW competition. I thought Kirby's essay was similar for, for that. I remember you wrote a piece at the start of the AFLW season about not calling girls girls. Because mm-hmm. in footy and with boys, it's always the boys. Like Saturdays are for the boys. Um just talk us through the thinking behind that particular idea. So I read a piece by um, sports writer Danielle Warby, who's um, a phenomenal writer and thinker about um, issues around women's sport. And she wrote a piece that was kind of almost like a set of instructions about how to talk about women in sport. And one of them was don't call girls girls unless you're a player of the team and you're calling your female players girls. Um, it's just a no-no. And I hadn't thought about it in that context before because I was of the opinion well, I'm a woman, I can call other women girls. Um, perhaps it's sounding a bit derogatory if it's a male calling girls because of the history behind it, because it's kind of, you know, the little girl, good girl. It's kind of puts women in check when you call them a girl. Um, but what I realised was even though you can try to make the comparisons, like 
boys and girls in sport, there is no comparison because one of the boys actually brings you into something. Being a boy is something to be lauded. It's like, yep, you're one of the boys, On good on you. Um, being one of the girls is not on the same level. So I still use the term boys a lot um, and I'm okay with that, but I will not use the term girls um, because I don't think it's adequate. Um for what these women are doing and it's not respectful um, and I hope we do get it to a point where we can sort of bring them both on the same level and that girls is a really good colloquial term again but right now it's just not. And why do you go for women over ladies? I think for the same reasons. Um, I think ladies also keeps women in check. It's a check of femininity. Um, I might call some of my fellow girlfriends ladies but it will be in a sarcastic way um but i won't address women who i don't know as ladies or um i rarely say ladies and gentlemen um and these are quite considered things and i know a lot of people really don't care about these type of um like intricacies of language but um Women, for me, is just the word to use right now until we sort of make some progress in this space. Well, that one makes an abundance of sense because there was a lot of hockey clubs in England that used to be the oh, bloody you know Edinburgh University Ladies Hockey Club. And I think ladies, well, it, that's a very strong gender stereotype in itself, I think, the use of that term. Um, so that one is 100%, and I completely understand the thinking behind the girls as well. Balancing Acts Women in Sport, essays on power, performance, bodies and love is available at most good bookstores. Definitely available at readings, Casey. Definitely available at readings. I came from there just before this podcast and they have got lots of copies, so go yeah. get one. And I popped in last night to grab one, so that's probably your go-to. If not, it is available online via the Lifted Browse website and... I would encourage anyone who, I guess, wants to learn um, and also to read some really insightful content to pick it up. Uh, it's definitely the four essays I've read thus far, including yours, Casey, have all been really thought-provoking and definitely worthwhile. And on that note, thanks so much to everyone for joining us. Uh, thanks to Casey Simons. Thank you to the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, who have kindly let us use this wonderful but slightly sweaty box that we're in. Uh, and I don't think we've got any... Oh, thanks, Gordo, for doing the producing on this uh, episode. Um, but that is all from me. We look forward to another scintillating weekend in football and a 76-point win for the Tigers. Monday's experts Monday's experts Monday's experts